Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 28, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, I first talked with staff writer Kelly Servick about the difficulties of making animal chimeras by adding stem cells from one animal to the embryo of another with the ultimate goal of growing organs. And I talked with Yossi Yovel about how, even though bats can detect a lot about the world around them using vision and echolocation, we're just learning now how they switch between these senses and why. And for this month's book segment, books editor Valerie Thompson talks with Lucy Jones about her work translating climate data into song. Now we have Kelly Servick, staff writer for Science. She's here to talk to us about making chimeras from different animals. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sarah. Okay, what's a chimera? So a chimera is just any animal that has cells from two different species or even from two different individuals of the same species. It's a mixed-celled animal. Okay. How would one go about making a chimera? It totally depends on what you're trying to do. So chimeras are involved in all kinds of experiments where you are just sort of engrafting human cells onto a mouse, for example, mm. to study like how a tumor grows. Or like the all... famous ear on the back of a mouse. Yeah. So that would be a chimeric animal. Mm -hmm. um, but the kind of chimera that I wrote about this week and that's, that some of these researchers are working on is a, kind of a more specific kind of chimera where you would inject stem cells from one species into the very early stage embryo of another species. And so that would create an animal that was much more mixed animal. Right. Those, there are a lot more of those foreign cells, theoretically. The ultimate goal of this research is to make organs? That's one big goal, yeah. A lot of these researchers are trying to grow a fully human organ in an animal, probably eventually a livestock animal like a pig or a sheep. But if you introduce the cells so early in the development of the embryo, what, what would they do to get those cells to become a specific organ inside an animal, the unrelated animal? Yeah, the hope is that you would genetically modify the embryo first mm -hmm. so that that animal is not going to be able to develop a particular organ oh. of interest. So you'd kind of have an animal with a hole where that organ should be. And then the introduced stem cells would sort of fill that niche as they develop and fill in the organ. Really interesting. How much of that has been done so far? A little bit of that has been done in <laughs> rodents <laughs> so okay. far. 
researchers have been able to create a mouse pancreas in a rat and a rat pancreas in a mouse. And they've even been able to treat diabetes in a mouse by implanting pancreas tissue, mouse pancreas tissue that was grown in a rat. Oh, boy. So this is a, you're getting to the organ transplant part. That's the thought eventually, yeah. What have been some of the big hurdles to doing this? So after these really impressive mouse results, yeah. um, it became clear that it was not going to be this easy with any species and any random other species. And that's because... Uh, you mean like frog and pig? Yeah, or <laughs> human and sheep. Um, right. So basically, the cells from one species tend to not feel at home in the embryo of another species. Right. And that's especially a problem if those two species are evolutionarily very far apart, further apart than a rat and a mouse. Right. So mouse in person or rat in person, which even though those are good animal models, are not very evolutionarily close to us. Right. And so in 2017, actually, a paper came out where a group said, OK, let's just try this and see how these cells do. And they took human cells and put them into the embryo of a pig. And they even implanted that embryo into a surrogate pig and let them develop for, I think, three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. And when they took those embryos out and looked at them, not only were about half of them really stunted and abnormally small, but even the ones that were normal sized, they didn't have hardly any human cells in them. They had very, very few of these sort of inserted foreign cells developing. So unlikely to live on to make an organ. Yeah, it was encouraging that they survived at all, I think, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it did not leave people thinking, all right, great, we're going to make these organs now. Well, once you get into human territory, once you start talking about putting human cells in a pig or a mouse, that's when the ethical quandaries come up. What are some of the big questions that people have about, you know, the future of this technology? The biggest concern that people have is that if this were very successful and you were able to insert human cells into an embryo and then end up with an animal that had a very large number of human cells, mm -hmm. you might have an unprecedented mix between a human and an animal. And that's particularly concerning if that host animal is a primate that's very closely related to us. In particular, the concern is if the human cells end up in the brain, right? Yeah, the, the two places that are most concerning, I think, are the brain where theoretically, you know, human brain cells could confer some kind of special intelligence right. to an animal or in the gonads where if you had a human sperm or egg cell, then mating animals with these cells could either result in a fully human embryo or what's called a hybrid, which is where every single cell would be a mix between a human and another animal, which most people are not interested in seeing. Right. This sounds almost like science fiction. This sounds really far out. But there are regulations in place even today that are trying to prevent something like that from happening. And for example, Japan has some regulations, although they've changed recently. Japan is one of the few places I know of that has actually put in place legal restrictions mm -hmm. on creating chimeras. A lot of other places, it just hasn't sort of come to that yet. It's more something that is being discussed by ethicists. Mm -hmm. But in Japan, until recently, they had a restriction that you couldn't create a human animal chimera and grow it in a dish past 14 days, mm -hmm. even if you weren't planning on implanting it. And in March, that changed such that you could grow that embryo and also implant it into a surrogate with proper ethical permission from a government board. Okay, so Japan might be taking on some new kinds of experiments in the next few years. Yeah, there have been applications now to try and grow human cells in rodents and pigs and implant them, but remove those embryos before they came to term. What about here in the U.S.? I know there's a lot of restrictions on embryo research, but does this cross into chimera territory? A little bit. There are no legal restrictions, but the National Institutes of Health, which is the, the huge funder of, of this kind of research in the U.S., has 
said that it will not review applications or fund research that involves putting human stem cells into a very early stage vertebrate non-human embryo. So <laughs> vertebrate non-human means basically everything with a backbone. Right. Yeah. yeah. We are talking frogs, pigs, mice. Lots yeah, of things that you. you would want to study. Um, yeah. You could not get NIH funding to do that. Okay. But non-government funded research could take place in the it U.S. It could and it, and it has been has mm-hmm. been taking place. Okay. What are the next steps for this research? It sounds like we had a good start in the rodent models, but now as we get into primates or, or larger, more evolutionarily close animals, things are getting a little dodgy. The steps are getting smaller is what yeah. it seems like ah. to me. So the one of the things I wrote about this week was a preprint paper that describes a chimpanzee cells growing in the embryo of a rhesus macaque monkey. Mm-hmm. So these are two pretty closely related primate species where they were able to get the chimp cells to survive for a couple of days in a dish in the embryo of a monkey. Right. They, you can't really develop that embryo much further without implanting it into yeah. a, a surrogate mother. So that's something that these researchers are planning to do soon. Right. So they have two evolutionarily close non-human primates. That's right. And the idea is that they it would not be sort of ethically reasonable to use human cells as one of those two primates, mm-hmm. but the chimpanzee cells are sort of trying to stand in for the human cells. Right. The thinking is that if they can sort of modify those cells in ways that make them more robust, more able to survive in this foreign embryo, the same might apply to human cells. So you, at some point you could put human cells in a macaque. At some point you would jump over, but probably probably you would be trying to get those human cells into a pig or a sheep. Mm-hmm. It would um, not be very, for one thing, economically feasible to try and have a lot of primates right. someday producing human organs at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, it would make more sense with a livestock animal. I think. And I have heard of growing organs in other animals like pigs, but not using this approach. Are those methods much further along? Or are they going to happen before we end up? Is this going to work before the chimera system works? It seems like it probably will. That approach called xenotransplantation mm-hmm. is where you would genetically modify a pig so that its organs were more compatible with a human recipient, but it's still a pig organ. Mm-hmm. And so that approach already has you know, companies behind it that are testing how long pig organs can survive in non-human primates. Right. But this chimera research, they don't even have the organs yet, right? So it's, it's much earlier days, but there's also this, this optimism that eventually you would end up with an organ that was human and that would be a, an even better match for the person that needed an organ. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. Kelly Cervik is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Yasi Yavel about how bats choose between vision and echolocation. This episode has been brought to you in part by Magellan TV. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming membership founded by filmmakers and producers that brings together premium content that dives deep into diverse subjects and interests. Stay current with the latest findings and gain insight into the topics you're passionate about. Want to know more about the nature of a black hole or where climate change is taking us? These are the stories of Magellan TV. Magellan TV offers documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists on genres like science, space, history, and nature. In fact, they have the deepest collection of high-quality science programming available anywhere, with 13 science playlists curated specifically for science enthusiasts. New programs are added on a weekly basis and can be watched anytime, anywhere, on your laptop, 
television, or mobile device. Stream without interruptions and enjoy a wide selection of programs available in 4K. Magellan TV is compatible with Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Google Play, iOS. Start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. That's MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that makes learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and their confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspiration, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. How do we integrate sensory input, sights, smells, sounds into our perception of the world around us? When does vision dominate over hearing? There are a lot of challenges to answering these types of questions. And this week, a research group writing in Science Advances worked with Egyptian fruit bats to get some interesting perspective on these sensory trade-offs. Yassi Yovel is here to talk about this. Hi, Yassi. Hi, Sarah. Why are bats a good model for working on understanding which senses are used and when? Most people think that bats are blind, but uh, actually all bats can see. And the specific species that we were working with, the Egyptian fruit bat, sees very well. If you just look at the photo of this bat, you will see that it has large eyes. Most bats also have this sixth sense, which allows them to perceive the world using sound, which we call echolocation. This makes them very interesting in terms of integrating two distal sensory modalities. Okay, So if you think of yourself, you integrate vision and hearing. But these two sensory modalities give you very different types of perception. With bats, both echolocation and vision give you high-resolution distal input about your surrounding. You had a a number of really unique setups that you were able to use to tease out what the bats are using and when. Can you describe, you know, one of these experiments where you had to train the bats in this room and they had to use one sense over the other? The easiest to explain and maybe also the most interesting one was training bats on a classification task. So they have to differ between two objects. Basically, you do it like you train a dog. You reward them for landing on one object and not on the other. In this case, the objects were two cubes, but one cube had holes in it and one did not. Once they showed very convincingly that they can perform the task, so they will only always land on the correct object, then for the first time, we tested them using vision. So until that moment, they've never seen the targets. And the question was, can they transfer 
acoustic information into a visual representation. How do they do on this task once you, you flipped on the lights and let them use their vision? So first of all, you have to allow them to use vision, but you also have to eliminate echolocation. And we did this by placing the targets or the, the two objects inside transparent boxes. So their reflection, their acoustic image is identical, but visually you can see the differences between them. The truth is that some of the bats performed amazingly well, while others did not. But for me, even if one bat can do it and you can prove that it is really using vision, so we had to prove that it's not using, for example, olfaction or something else, then it means that they can do it because there are many reasons for the bats not to perform the task. For example, when we turn on the light, we stop rewarding them. We don't feed them anymore because we don't want them to learn the targets again visually, right? We taught them uh, based on reward which is the correct object acoustically, but we do not want to train them visually and therefore we stop rewarding them. So the bats quickly learn, okay, I don't get rewarded when the light is on. Why should I perform at all? Still, about half of the bats were able to perform it, which proves to me that to some extent they can translate echoes into a visual representation. So you found in through your experiments that they, they can make this transfer, but you also found that they seem to have a preference, that in some cases they use vision and in some cases they use echolocation. What circumstances did they seem to prefer one modality over the other? Bats will prefer vision in, in many situations, much more than we would expect. Right. And that is because vision gives you very high spatial resolution. So echolocation is very good for if you're in complete darkness, of course, echolocation prevails. There's no question there. Echolocation is also very good for ranging. If you're a fruit bat, like the ones we've worked with, and you want to land on a target, then echolocation gives you accurate distance information, which is hard to get with vision. But in most cases, vision will give you better resolution. So we ran two different experiments. In one experiment, we asked the bats once again to differ between two objects. In this case, we had a triangle and a, and a cylinder. Unlike the previous experiment, we allowed them to use both vision and echolocation. So both were available to them. The bats echolocated and there was also light in the room. Mm -hmm. And later on, we examined them using only one of the modalities. So either in complete darkness or by placing the objects in these transparent cubes like we did before. So eliminating the possibility of using the other modality. And the assumption was that if they use this modality before, they will quickly perform the target only with this modality. And what we saw is that when allowing them to use vision, they immediately performed the task. So they definitely used vision when they were trained. But when letting them use only echolocation, they did not perform the task, suggesting that even though they echolocated during the training, they did not use this information in order to distinguish between the two targets. Very interesting. You ascribe that to the high level of resolution that vision gives them in most circumstances. Do you think that other bats with less acute vision might behave differently? Yes. I, I'll just I'll say one more sentence about these bats and then I'll answer you. Uh, and that is that where they're using echolocation, and that goes back to what I said before, they were probably using echolocation to, to range, to estimate the distance to the target and to, and to land on it. And yes, I, I think you're completely right. We know that other bat species do not rely on vision to the same extent. A very simple uh, rule of thumb is you just look at the size of the eyes of the bat relative to its body, and you can see that some bats have really tiny, minute eyes and probably don't use them, and, and those bats would probably not uh, rely on vision to classify uh, uh, targets. Mm -hmm. What was it like working with bats in these types of experiments? I mean, how easy are they to train compared with some of the other animals used for this kind of testing? 
So first of all, I should say that all of the experiments were performed by a PhD student, Sasha Danilovich. So she was the one actually spending the many, many hours with the bats. But, <laughs> but I have done so in the past, so I can also give some feeling of how, how it is. The main problem when you train an animal like a bat or any animal, I would say, there's a, a huge, a long phase in which the animal is afraid of you and, and doesn't understand, you know, if I'll put it in, uh, in human terms, doesn't understand what you're asking it to learn. Once you pass the stage, then you can really ask whether the animal is able or not to do this. Uh, on a more personal note, I can say that, you know, when you spend many hours with these animals in the dark, first of all, you observe them a lot and you get to know them very well, but they also get to know you very well. So when I trained bats in the past, they would recognize me by voice. They would land on me voluntarily while I would enter the room. They would hear me and immediately come and land on me and expect, of course, a reward. So you, you develop a personal uh, connection with these animals. Yeah. Going back to understanding these trade-offs and when these modalities are used, how do these results that you found help us understand further sensory integration and the trade-offs that we make? Yeah, so of course there is the the bat level and there is the general, the more general level. On the bat level, I would say we understand a few things. First of all, we understand more and more about the importance of vision in echolocating bats. So people tend to neglect this thinking, you know, echolocation is such a wonderful thing. Let's study it, including me, myself, by the way. But we realize more and more that, that vision is very important. There's a very fundamental question in echolocation. And that is, what kind of perception do you get using echolocation? So some people would pose the question as, uh, can bats reconstruct a 3D image of the world using echoes? Is it possible? We don't know. And there are a lot of uh, debates about this. And since you cannot enter the bat's brain or be a bat, it's probably impossible to answer. But I think that experiments uh, of the kind that we've done can allow you to get a better understanding of the answer to this question. Because, you know, we've now shown that a bat can perceive an object with holes and translate this into a visual representation. So by training the bat on different 3D shapes acoustically and then testing its ability to perform the task visually, we can get an ever better understanding of what kind of representation it is able to build using sonar, using sound. And what about the general level, kind of abstracting away from the bat? As you said in your opening, intersensory integration is a big question. There's more and more evidence, for example, that brain regions, even in humans, that were previously believed to be auditory only or visual only, now we realize that they're actually processing intersensory uh, uh, data. I think bats are just fascinating models because they have this strong reliance of two modalities. And indeed, one of the one of our future plans is to look into their brain, for example, using a functional MRI in order to try to understand which brain regions are in charge of processing information coming from vision and from echolocation separately or together. You've worked with robots that are built to some extent like bats in the past. Is this research going to contribute to that work as well? Yeah, so the, it's funny that you ask because originally the robot was supposed to be a multi-sensory robot. It was supposed to have vision and olfaction as well. I was only in charge on the of the acoustic part. The truth is that we never got to really integrating vision with echolocation on this robot, but definitely that's part of the idea. And whenever people talk with me about robotics and the advantage of sonar, I, I always say it's not uh, the idea is not to replace vision because we know that cameras give you a lot of information. The idea is to somehow integrate the advantages of each of the sensors and get a better robot altogether. Okay, Yazi, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome.
Yossi Yavel is a professor in the School of Zoology and Sagol School of Neuroscience at Tel Aviv University. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Please stick around for our book segment up next with books editor Valerie Thompson and seismologist Lucy Jones. Welcome back to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Valerie Thompson, the book review editor here at Science. And today our guest is seismologist Lucy Jones, who's here to talk not about earthquakes, but about another existential threat facing humanity, climate change. And she's not actually going to be discussing a book. We're actually going to be chatting about a haunting new song that she's composed that allows listeners to hear Earth's temperature data over the last 138 years. Before we get into the song itself, can you tell me what was it about climate change that caught your attention? Was it because it was something that we're all talking about now? Was it a natural extension of your research? Was it something in your personal life that made it really resonant for you? As a researcher in disaster science, I can see that what's coming with climate change is going to be dwarfing the earthquake risk for most parts of the country. It becomes something that we really have to, to grapple with. As I was completing the piece, uh, actually, my son entered a PhD program in climate science, so it's added a very personal touch to it as well. So the first time that I listened to the song, I was like, yes, this is such a perfect way to communicate the urgency of global warming. But I don't think I would have come up with that myself. Was this something about the data that made you think, I should write a song about this? It was an odd confluence where someone else, a cellist and an atmospheric scientist, had made a video that just had taken the climate data and turned the temperature into pitch and just played it. And of course, that's just a random series of notes. At the same time, I was at a meeting of the Viola da Gamba Society of America and taking a class in a traditional style of music called inamine, where one of the instrument voices in a group of instruments plays what's called the cantus firmus, a bass song. And it was the juxtaposition of those two events, seeing the climate date at the same time, I was really looking at how that music of inamine was constructed and played, that I got the idea of putting it together just the climate data. There's no cadences. <laughs> there's no chord progressions. It's just random notes. You don't perform it in that sense. It's just a sound. The piece is called In Nomine Terra Collins, which I gather is Latin for in the name of a warming earth. Um, right. So let's talk about the structure. How did you interpret the global temperature data musically? Okay. So I took this idea from that I had seen where came up with a scaling function. So it's 0 0.03 degrees centigrade represents a half step in pitch. So there's 12 half steps in an octave. So 0.36 degrees centigrade is an octave change. And then I just arbitrarily started it at a pitch that allowed us me to go to the lowest note on the instrument for the coldest days and three octaves above that, which is the top of the comfortable range for a viola da gamba. And that was in... Uh, in 2013, when I first made that scaling, when I was finally finishing it up and realized it had been several years, I needed to add a few more years of data. I ended up having to go another fifth higher because of the rise in temperature just since 2013, which literally took the piece off the end of the fingerboard of the instrument. I can luckily play it because it's a harmonic 
but it's literally the highest note that can be played on the instrument now. So we'll play a longer passage at the end of the segment, but let's listen to a short clip here. So you've mentioned the uh, viola da gamba. Tell me about that instrument. Okay, the viola da gamba is a quite old instrument. It evolved parallel to the violin family. So it's a viol. And in the 16th and 17th century, a very common form of music was a viol consort, a group of these instruments playing together. It ended up uh, losing popularity because it was the aristocrat's instrument. So when Cromwell's revolution happened in England, his people destroyed most of the vials in England. Less than 100 survived. And then Marie Antoinette played the gamba, so the French Revolution had a way of sort of finishing um, the, the end. But at the early 20th century, people started bringing it back. And when I went to college in the 1970s was the beginning of what was called the early music movement. And I got the opportunity to study it in college and play it and have, have kept with it ever since. Somebody I know called a, a vile consort music a, a musical dinner conversation where you have ideas and you pass them back and forth. And at this point in music's evolution, it is much more an instrument that people play together and share rather than as much a performance instrument. And how does it feel to to play this song as compared to some more traditional piece that you might play? It's it's rather in the style of the older music. I We used to joke that once I discovered the 17th century, I never saw a reason to return to the 20th. So it's the music (laughs) that I've lived with for many years. And so what I wrote is more in that style. It is a very odd experience to be performing music I wrote. That's a first for me at the end of a pretty long life that's involved a lot of playing of the gamba. And it's exciting. It's the first time I've had music that's got a reason to be played beyond the music. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what helped me get over my reticence to share music I wrote. It's much more personal than sharing a, a scientific publication, I can tell yeah. you that. I'm sure, and I'm sure it must be so strange to hear someone else playing, you know, something that came out of your mind. And the recording of it is actually done by a professional group. Uh, we had a premiere performance at the Natural History Museum here in Los Angeles, and I played the data line, partly, of course, because I'm the scientist. The others were all professionals, and part of this tradition was having this contus firmus line that was drawn out. It was also a much simpler line to play. So when you had a aristocratic patron who thought himself a good player and probably thought himself better than he actually was, you could invite him to play with you because he would be given the contus firmus part. And then you could have a lower level person playing with you. So I thought it was rather appropriate that I played the uh, contus firmus while the professionals played the rest of it. And for you, which came first? Was it your passion for music or for science, or did they kind of evolve together? They very much evolved together. My father was an aerospace engineer and a pianist. I grew up in a Welsh family where the only question was which instrument you played, not uh, (laughs) (laughs) whether you played. And have you ever tried to put any of your own data to music before? Or has this project inspired you to try to do that? Earthquakes are harder because they actually are frequency-based and temporally based. So there's not quite the scaling function. Actually, there's another USGS seismologist, a guy named Andy Michael, a very good trombonist, who wrote a piece for 
trombone, soprano, cello, and earthquake, and used <laughs> earthquake recordings as the percussion line in the piece. And I've performed that with him, but I sort of feel like he already did that idea. I can't imagine trying to copy from that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, with that, we'll wrap up the book segment this month, um, but not without letting you hear a bit more of Inamine Tara Collins. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>